Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Holy Waiting. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul encourages Christians in the midst of an ungodly culture to live in holiness as they eagerly await the return of Jesus. This morning, our text is going to be coming from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16, 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 16. They're going to be up here on the screen. We've also got them in the handout that we've given out. I'm, I'm using the uh, English Standard Version this morning. So I encourage you to read and follow along and also to have your Bibles ready because there'll be a few other verses that I'll, uh, I'll reference as we go along. So hear now the word of our God. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Uh, This last week in After Hours, our little uh, video segment we do each week, uh, I actually talked just a little bit about my own conversion. That was some something that people had kind of asked about, just the story of how I became a believer and how I knew uh, what God had called me to do in life. And so we talked about that a little bit, and that had me thinking back to when I first became a believer. And one of the first major signs that I was changing, that my parents saw and other people around me saw, was I began to have a deep hunger for the Word of God. Uh, Matter of fact, I got saved on a Sunday afternoon and on Monday showed up with a Bible at school. I just suddenly knew I wanted to understand and know God's Word. As a young teenager, I used to keep multiple Bibles open on my bedroom floor so I could kind of just go along and read all the different translations and trying to understand the Word of God. Suddenly, the Gospel, Scripture, going to Bible studies and trying to hear people teach the Word of God filled my mind, and it was the the single greatest desire I had going in my life, and that was very different because I had not grown up in the church. And that's one of the effects of being called by God in among his people. Suddenly the scripture becomes to us alive and something that we want to hear, we want to learn, we want to be part of. And the Thessalonians, Paul is telling us here, had a very similar experience. And so today we want to talk about their holy response to the word of God, that in this time between when Jesus ascended to the Father and when he returns again, that we are to have a response to God's word, God speaking to us, and we see the right one from the Thessalonians, and then we also see a wrong one from another group. So let's dive into this holy response to the word of God. Notice in verse 13, the apostle Paul tells us, he says, uh, and we... Speaking of he, Silas, and Timothy, we thank God constantly for this. He's kind of going back to his Thanksgiving prayer that we started the letter with from chapter 1. And it's that when you received the word of God. 
And so Paul is telling us here that the Thessalonians received the word. It was handed down to them. The word is often used of traditions that are handed on. But here in this case, it's, it's the word of God. When you took it and you did not reject it, but rather you received it. And Paul is saying we constantly give thanks for this because to Paul and the rest of the apostles, this was evidence that the Thessalonians had actually been born again. This showed the change that was working in them. And this is not just something we surmise. Paul, again, throughout this section, he is linking back to his opening prayer. And in the opening prayer in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Paul was going through the, the reasons he gave thanks. And one of the things was that because we are knowing brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because or in that our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You remember what Paul said, when I think back to you all, and I, I'm giving thanks because I remember when we were there, it wasn't just that we were speaking, the Holy Spirit came in power and he was at work and there was a full conviction or a full assurance both for, from us and in your response to the word of God. And Paul there, that was part of his Thanksgiving prayer. And he's kind of going back to that now in 1 Thessalonians 2 when he had just talked about their ministry and what a holy ministry looked like. He says, and then you responded to that. You had a response to the word of God. We saw God's hand as, as his spirit and his word worked powerfully among you. And it was seen in that you all responded to the word of God. Uh, you remember Jesus had said, you can't see the Holy Spirit. He's like the wind. All you can in essence do is see the effects of the Spirit. And Paul says, we saw the effects. We saw that suddenly you who had no interest in the word of God, you hungered after God's word. You received the word of God. And Paul goes on and he explains this, that what's happening is the Thessalonians are accepting gospel preaching as God's word. Okay, what he's specifically talking about here not, is not really the scripture, but the apostolic proclamation. We know this because in verse 13, he says, you received the word of God, which you heard from us. And you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, which is the word of God. So Paul's not here really talking about Old Testament scripture, though that would have been amazing enough for the Thessalonians to receive that because they're predominantly Gentiles. But Paul is mainly speaking about saying, when we were there preaching the word of God, when we were taking the Old Testament scriptures and we were opening them up and we were showing how Jesus was the focus and fulfillment of all of that and that God had come and offered salvation to us in Christ, as we proclaim the gospel to you all, you received that apostolic proclamation for what it was. Not the word of men, not something we made up, but rather the very word of God. Now, this might sound a little bit strange to us as Protestants. We want to be careful and say, well, the scripture's the word of God. And we're concerned about anything else that would compete with it. But interestingly enough, actually, in the Reformation itself, in one of the great confessions of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, in the Second Helvetic Confession, we read this in chapter 1. It says this, and you can follow it on the screen here. The preaching of the Word of God, which is the Scripture, is the Word of God. Wherefore, when this Word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very Word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful, 
and that neither any other word of God is to be invented nor is to be expected from heaven, and that now the word itself which is preached is to be regarded not as the minister that preaches, for even if he be evil and a sinner, nevertheless the word of God remains still true and good. What they're talking about there in the middle where they say we're not looking for another word, they're saying we're not looking for some kind of extra scriptural thing that comes down. We have the word of God in the scripture and then people who are called by God are to faithfully expound that scripture and our response to that is the word preached is also God speaking to us. That is God's word to us. And this is a reflection back on what the Thessalonians had done. Now, this should bring up a question because if you've been around and heard me teach much before, then you should be having a question go off right now, which is, but I thought we were supposed to test everything by the scripture. And in fact, we are supposed to do that. But notice what it says there in the Helvetic Confession, which is that the, the word of God is being preached and we receive that word coming forth. But they're not saying that we don't test everything that is there. And in fact, we are always called to test everything by the scripture. We know the scripture is the word of God. When I read 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 16 this morning, there is no question that is the word of God. What I am doing now in proclaiming that word and in trying to teach that word needs to be received, but it also needs to be examined. And this is actually exactly what we see in the Thessalonians and in the Bereans. In Acts chapter 17, verse 11, when Luke is recording what had happened in Thessalonica and then what happened in Berea, he says this, Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So Luke says, look, in Thessalonica, most of the people rejected the apostolic message and they were very closed off to it, but the Bereans on the whole were more noble, and he says that they did better, and here's why. He gives two reasons that were differences between the people of Berea and the people of Thessalonica. Number one, the Bereans eagerly received the preaching. The Thessalonians did not. They were skeptical. They were closed off. They didn't really listen even to what Paul and the others were saying. And Luke said, that's not noble. That's not good. That's not right. If you want to be the people of God, you eagerly receive the preaching of the word of God. But he said there's a second difference, which is the Bereans who eagerly received it were not the ones who then didn't test it. They were, in fact, the ones who went on to test it. See, the Thessalonians neither eagerly received the teaching, nor did they test the teaching against Scripture. They just rejected it without even testing it uh, at, at all. They rejected it out of hand. And so Luke says, no, here's the pattern. Here's what you're to do. You eagerly receive the word of God being taught. You, you look for it. You are excited about it. You embrace it, but you go back and you test it against the scripture. And you say, is what Paul's saying true? And when I find out it is true, I embrace that and say, God is speaking to me. Now, what this means to us is Christians are called to eagerly receive the preached word of God and then to examine the scriptures to verify its truth. We are to 
eagerly wait to hear God's word being taught. We should not have an attitude that says, and you can get this sometimes, me and Jesus. I've got the Bible. I don't need anything else. Well, then that's not the fruit of the Spirit of God at work. We are told that we are to eagerly receive it. We want the Word of God to be taught to us, and we want to receive it, but then we're going to go back and verify everything against the written Word of God, the Scripture, which alone is fallible, which alone is our final rule, authority for faith and practice. And Paul goes on and says, and then look, here's the result of that. Because you eagerly received the message, you were among the minority in Thessalonica. And what you did was you eagerly received the message and you received it as the word of God and you did examine it and test it. Here's what happens to you. The word of God powerfully works in those who receive it by faith. So he goes on in verse 13 and he says, you accepted it not as the word of men, but it is what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. The word has a powerful effect on those who receive it by faith. When the word of God, and remember here what Paul's talking about is not just the written scripture, but the proclamation of that scripture. And Paul says, when you received that by faith and you heard the Holy Spirit speaking through fallen, flawed fallible men, but when you received it as the word of God, it had a powerful effect on you because you received it in faith. And notice the powerful effect does not just stop with that moment of conversion, but it has an ongoing effect. Now, the reason we know this is the word, the verbs in this uh, section here, which work in you believers, and the word believers is actually a verbal word, not a noun, And both of those are present tense. It's an ongoing thing. Paul's reflecting back to what happened when he was there with them. But he says, look, that's got an ongoing effect. The word is still working because you are still believing. It is still building you up. It's having its effect as you continue to receive it in faith. And so the powerful effect of the word of God does not stop when you and I are justified. It's not just like, well, we heard the gospel and we responded to the gospel and I'm justified and there ends the effect of the word of God and now my flesh, my strength take over. Paul says, no, no, no. The word that you received in faith and that was powerful to justify, that was powerful to regenerate and to save, that same word is powerful to sanctify to change, to consistently transform you day by day to make you like Jesus. The word is still at work as you are still receiving it in faith. Friends, we are justified by faith. We are sanctified by faith. We are justified as we receive the word of God. And as we continue to hear the word of God, it continues to transform us day by day by day. And so God's holy people are those who eagerly receive God's word in faith and who are continually changed by that powerful living word. That's what defines us. That was the biggest change that my friends saw. I mean, I was a pretty big mess when I got saved and the effect was not immediate in all of my behavior 
in the words I used or didn't use, but what my friends noticed immediately was a different response to the Word of God. And then that powerful living Word started changing me, moment by moment, day by day, and that's exactly what it does in us. I remind you again to never doubt or deny this. It is a miracle that you desire to gather and hear God's Word taught. It's a miracle. Most of humanity is running around with our fingers and our ears to do anything to avoid hearing the Word of God. And we especially don't want to hear it being preached and applied to our hearts and our consciences. And the fact that you do, and the fact that I do, is a, is a miracle that we ought to be like Paul and the apostles and say, I give thanks to God constantly because I could have no desire for this Word. Because I spent 16 years with no desire for this word. Now, that's one response. But there's a second possible response, and that's an unholy response to the word of God. So Paul contrasts that in verses 14 and 16 with those who, rather than receiving the word, reject the word. In verse 14, he's speaking of how they became imitators of the churches of God and in Judea, and they suffered. And we're going to go over persecution next week, so I'm not really going to talk about that much. But he said, you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And so Paul's saying, look, whether you're Jew or Gentile, here's what happens when you have a holy response to the Word of God. There's another group of people, and they don't like that response to the Word of God. And so whether you're Jew or you're Gentile, Paul says, persecution arose against you. And he's pointing out particularly the Jews in Judea here. And he's saying that they were doing a, uh, they were beginning to persecute the believers who first arose up in the church in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. Paul goes on in verse 15 because this kind of reminds him of those particular Jews that they had struggled. And it's kind of interesting because we know that some of the Jewish leaders in Thessalonica had not only rejected Paul, they even followed him to Berea and tried to stir up trouble there. But Paul doesn't even use them. He goes back to the Jews in Judea. And he says this, look, this is all part of a pattern of rejecting the word of God and ultimately rejecting God himself. Notice in verse 15, he says that you know, they, they had suffered this from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out displease God and all mankind. And so he says, this group of people, don't be surprised that back in Judea, they were persecuting the early believers. Because I might back up one step and remind you, they had killed Jesus. The very one they said they were waiting for, their Lord, their Messiah, when he actually came rather than responding to him, rather than believing in him, rather than receiving him, they actually rejected him, oppressed him, crucified, and killed him. They claimed that they loved and served God, but when God came to them in flesh, they put him to death. They despised him. Now, this is the effect, the culmination of centuries of rejecting God and his word and his messengers. 
And Paul's bringing this up. It didn't, in other words, it didn't begin with the believers in Judea. He's traced it back to Jesus, but we can actually trace it back further. And Jesus, in a passage that Paul is clearly referring to here, had said the same thing in Matthew chapter 23. This is his chapter with seven sets of woes that lead into a discussion of what's going to happen to the temple uh, in chapter 24. So in chapter 23, beginning at verse 29, Jesus said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, Oh, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. So Jesus is saying, you are claiming you would have acted differently, but what I'm here to tell you is, no, 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 you are the children. Those are your fathers, and like father, like son. You you are behaving the same way they did. And so what I'm telling you is, you say you would have acted differently, but you, this current generation, you are going to live down to the level of your fathers. And so he says, you're going to Fill up the measure of the sin, is what he's getting at, of your fathers. You talk about how great the measure of their sin is, you're going to fill it up. You're going to match drop for drop exactly what they were like. And the ultimate thing, this is actually Jesus shortly before this very group he is speaking these woes to, they are going to take him and they are going to kill him. And he's already predicting that and saying, you say you would have acted differently, but I am the culmination of all of the prophets. I am the great prophet that they all pointed towards, and you are not going to respond to me. You are instead going to kill me. And Paul goes on and says in verse 15 that they not only killed Jesus, but also the prophets and then drove out the apostles. Now, this could be referring to the Old Testament prophets because as we saw in Matthew 23, Jesus says, you killed the prophets and you're going to fill up the measure of their sin. But I don't think it's really talking about Old Testament prophets because I think it's going chronologically. It wouldn't make sense to say, Jesus, now we'll go back to Old Testament prophets, then I'm going to move forward to the apostles. He's really talking about the prophets that God sent out to speak to them. And we know this because Jesus in the passage I was just reading, continues on, and here's what he says. This is beginning at verse 34. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. And that word persecute is the same root which Paul uses here to say they drove us out. Because the word to persecute the effect was to drive the people away. So the the word group can be translated either drive out or persecute. And so Jesus here predicted and said, look, it's not going to just culminate with me. Just like the fathers persecuted the prophets, you are going to persecute and kill the prophet. And I am still in mercy going to send you more prophets that are going to come out. And guess what? You're going to reject them too. And you are going to drive them away from you. You're going to put some of them to death. And Jesus says in verse 35, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, 
from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Now, what's interesting is, of course, Abel, we know, is the first righteous murdered, one murdered in Scripture in Genesis chapter 4. We don't think of these terms. Zechariah is killed in 2 Chronicles, which is the last book in the Hebrew Old Testament. And their ordering, it doesn't end with Malachi, it ends with 2 Chronicles. So Jesus is saying, take every martyr in the Scripture. You're going to be held responsible for every one of them. The blood of every one of those martyrs is going to come down on you all. Because it all culminated when I came. And as I send out the new covenant proclamation of the gospel, and you rejected and killed me, you're going to reject and kill my messengers. And so all of that is going to come down on this generation. If anything would make you repent, it should have been that moment. They should have heard. They should have listened. And Paul is alluding to this saying and saying, but they didn't. They didn't listen. In fact, those prophets, and we're not sure whether the, the, the way the Greek works, it could be that they killed Jesus and they killed the prophets and they drove us out, or it could be they killed Jesus and the prophets and us, they drove out. They persecuted us and they drove us out. The Greek could work either way, uh, but the, the real point is this was their final chance. The word was coming to them and they rejected that word and so Paul says, and it culminates with even us. I can tell you firsthand, they drove us out. And it could be speaking of the Acts persecutions. We read in the book of Acts how they persecuted the apostles. Stephen was killed, in which case Paul would be implicated himself in having had that response. But then we know that later on, they drove them out with the persecution of James. And we know from history that the apostles were scattered out of Jerusalem. We also know Paul tells us many uh, persecutions that came against him personally, he lists them in 2 Corinthians 11, 22-25, that aren't in the book of Acts. We've got many things that aren't in Acts, so we know there were many other persecutions. In any event, whatever it is, what we know is they continued to resist the word of God. And so Paul says in verse 15, this is displeasing to God. They displease God. And the interesting thing, of course, is the very people who were doing this, who did they claim they were serving? They claimed they were serving God. But their actions, and they themselves, were displeasing to God. Friends, religious zealots can be among the most displeasing people to God, and there is often less hope of their conversion because they already think they are converted. They already think they're right with God. And they don't think they need to hear anything else because they don't eagerly receive the message. They don't test it against the Scripture. And Paul goes on and says, they not only have done all of these things, rejecting God and His Word and displeasing God, but they actually oppose mankind. They're, they're shutting themselves off from God, but then they're also hostile to mankind. Paul almost seems to say, couldn't you have just left it that you were shutting yourself off from God, but you can't do that? You're even hateful towards all humanity. In verses 15 and 16, he says that they displease God and they oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. What was interesting was 
there were a number of Roman writers who referred to the Jews as those who opposed humanity. They were against humanity. But they, they viewed them that way because they kept themselves separate. They were really calling themselves the holy people and they would not participate in the sins and the, the religious worship of all the people around them. Paul's basically saying, well, the charge is right. This group is opposing all humanity, but not because they're being faithful to God, but actually because they're being unfaithful to God. They're opposing all humanity because they ought to support the gospel going forth, but in fact, they're doing everything they can to oppose the gospel going forth. They are trying to stop the only message that can save. So Paul says, in effect, what they're doing is they're condemning people to hell. It's as if there is, well, I can even give an example of this. When I was in Niger a number of years ago, we kept noticing a bunch of people on the road whose bodies were badly mangled and their legs were very thin. They were like the size of my wrist. And we asked Rich Jorgensen, I said, what is, what is with these guys? What, what is their problem? And he said, well, they have polio. Polio? We, we healed that like 50 years ago. Nobody's gotten vaccines here. Our church is going to start getting vaccines here. And he said, oh, no, there's a lot of vaccines here. They're piled up in warehouses. Why are they not doing them? Well, because the local imams tell them, that's Christians trying to make you infertile. Don't take that shot. Now, they're going to be held responsible because that which could have cured them was right there, was ready available. But these men shut that off. Well, Paul says that's what these people are doing with the gospel. The only thing that can cure sin, they are trying to stop. And there is no more hateful action you can do to your fellow human beings than opposing God's word of salvation. I do not care how kind you are, what else you are doing. If you are opposing the gospel going forth, you are doing the most hateful thing you can do to a fellow human being. You may do it with a smile. You may win an award and get on the cover of a magazine. But if you are opposing the gospel, all you're doing is giving temporary fixes to eternal problems. And it will not work. Now, the scary thing is, Paul also goes on and says there's an outcome to this and the outcome is not just in the Gentiles, because amazingly enough, God overcame their resistance, and the gospel went forth to the Gentiles. But he says there's an outcome of rejecting God's word that happens to them themselves, and that is that they are hardened in sin. So notice as Jesus had said, fill up the measure of your fathers. Paul makes a similar statement here. He says that they're doing this so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. And the phrase is similar to what Jesus is using, but it's almost identical. And here's a big piece of irony. If you remember when Abraham, when God made covenant with Abraham and he put him asleep and, and the, the blazing pot and the smoking torch representing God went between the pieces and God made covenant with Abraham and said, for 400 years, your descendants are going to go away. And here's why they've got to be gone away for 400 years, because I'm waiting for the sin of the Amorites to fill up. Paul uses almost the same phrase and says, but here's the amazing thing. It's not the Amorite sin filling up. It's the physical descendants of Abraham. Their sin is filling up to full 
measure. And this is because there's been that consistent pattern of rejecting God and his word. And what it does is it hardens us in our sin. The reason the measure of sin fills up is there's no repentance. Just sin is added upon sin is added upon sin. And we go from one depth of depravity to another because we keep rejecting the word of God. One cannot remain neutral to the word of God. You either embrace it in faith or you reject it and you are hardened in your sin. There is no neutrality to the Word of God. I remember a professor in seminary, Dr. Mawenny, we were coming back from break in a class on the Gospels. We were in class for eight or nine hours that day. And we had been in class like four hours and night before. So, I mean, it, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of preaching and teaching. Amen, Ryan? <laughs> it's a lot. You can get tired. And Dr. Mawenny, to wake us up, came back and said, well, welcome back to the most dangerous place on earth. I'm going to be preaching the Word of God and teaching the Word of God, and in the next hour, you will be softened in your heart towards God or you will be hardened. But you will not remain the same. Okay, open your Bibles. And I was like, holy cow, I'm awake. <laughs> Pay attention back here. But it's true. One cannot remain neutral to the Word of God. The same sun that softens the wax hardens the clay. The same word of God that softens one in faith and love to God hardens another in their sin. And Paul says they have rejected over and over again. And he uses this phrase that may have caught your ears when I read it, but wrath has come upon them at last. Paul says this is evidence of the wrath of God. That's what this pattern is. If you go back and look, we won't take time, but if you look in Romans 1.18, Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men because they are suppressing the truth of God. And Paul three times uses this phrase because they're suppressing the truth of God, therefore God gave them over to their depraved mind, to their sin. And it gets worse. And every time they rejected another phase, we told, therefore, God gave them over. And that's really the wrath of God at work. The wrath of God is seen in the hardening in their sin after continued rejection of the word of God. But Paul here is actually a step beyond that because what he's, there's no question what he's looking at going back throughout this letter, the wrath is about the final day. It's about Jesus coming in judgment. And Paul says they have rejected and rejected and rejected, and the final day, that wrath that's going to come then is breaking through, and it's breaking out right now. And what he's really looking back to is, remember that passage I read to you where Jesus went through all these phrases that Paul's repeating? The very next thing is Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to bring you under me like a, a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not listen. Therefore, your house your temple is left desolate. And we get a chapter break, so we act like it's not with it. And then the disciples say, look how awesome the building is. Jesus says, I tell you, not one stone's going to be left upon another. They didn't recognize the time of God's coming to them. And see, we read Matthew 24, and we want to put it in the future. Now it's about 70 AD. That's what Matthew 24 is about. We know. They asked, when is this going to happen? When's the temple going to be destroyed? We know when the temple was destroyed. And Paul is seeing evidence of that already and saying it's breaking out. The Jews had already been expelled out of Rome. 
There were things going on, and Paul said, I'm seeing this pattern, and this is what Jesus talked about. My own flesh and blood have rejected, they have turned away. Now, the important thing is not, because Paul's not being anti-Semitic, or he's a Semite. That would be ridiculous. He's talking about a pattern, and this can happen whether you're Jew or Gentile. What Paul is telling us is, we should never think we can toy with the Word of God. We are either growing in faith and obedience, or we are being hardened in our sin. There is no neutral ground. So, it's a fearful thing to handle the Word of God. It's a fearful thing to have it proclaimed because it is not leaving us the same. Now, what does that mean for us? How do we apply this? It's really one simple question. Am I actively believing and embracing God's Word? Here's the good news for you and I. Nobody in the history of the world has ever had such great access to God's Word. We have many translations. We got Bibles in print everywhere. We carry them around on our phone. We can listen to it, talk about it. We can gather. You can turn on 24 hours a day, hear preaching coming. We can gather freely, just as Ronnie prayed before the, the teaching this morning. We are not, nobody came in here this morning thinking, I wonder if guys with guns are going to show up and kill us all for worshiping Jesus. We have free, open access to God's Word written, God's Word taught and proclaimed. But, but, here's the flip side of that. It's possible to let that ease of access breed complacency. Because I've got so much access I can respond tomorrow. I'll respond next week. I'll respond next year. I'll respond when the next thing comes down. I'm going to do it, but, but right now, I'm not ready to respond to the Word of God. But the Spirit calls us out of such complacency to a bold, active, consistent reception and application of God's Word to our lives. The Holy Spirit speaks to you and to me and says, I want you to not be lax. I want you to be bold. I don't want you to be passive. I want you to be active. I don't want you to be hit or miss. I want you to consistently, boldly, actively, consistently, Take the Word of God, whether it's what you're reading or what is being proclaimed to you as you gather with God's people, and I want you to take that, and I want you to receive it, and I want you to actively ask me to help you apply it to your lives. Because if you're not doing that, the sun is shining on clay and hardening it, moment by moment. So the question First one is, have you ever responded to the word of the gospel in faith? Looking to Christ alone as the one who can rescue you from the coming wrath. Not popular to talk about wrath. That's a word we do not mention in our culture. It's a, it's a five-letter word, but it's a four-letter word in our culture, right? 
Don't, if you go down today and stand up at the docks and holler, the wrath of God is coming, you are not going to have people gather around you and say, well, this is awesome. Tell me more about this. Right? We don't, we don't like that. But here's a bit of bad news. The wrath of God is coming. It is coming. And there is only one who can rescue from that wrath. And that is Jesus. He has drank the righteous wrath of God against your sin and against my sin. And that's why Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10 says, you, you turn to Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. He's the one that saves us and rescues us out of that. And so I urge every one of us, you can sit here week after week after week and hear the word of God taught. You can play it as you ride down the road. You can read it every morning and be hardened in your sin. I had an uncle. I, I hope God in his mercy reached out and saved my uncle, but he was more faithful in reading the scripture than almost anybody. And he would tell you, but I'm not a Christian. But he read it day after day. I remember one Christmas morning, he was sitting there getting drunker, reading the Bible, getting hardened in his sin. We don't want to do that. Jonathan Edwards, in a sermon called How the Salvation of the Soul is to be Sought, was preaching from the text about Noah. And I'm going to read Edwards' statements. I'll never forget reading this the first time. Noah warned them in words, and he preached to them. And he warned them also in his actions. His building the ark, which took him so long a time, and in which he employed so many hands, was a standing warning to them. All the blows of the hammer and the axe during the progress of that building were so many calls and warnings to the old world to take care for their preservation from the approaching destruction. Every knock of the workmen was a knock of Jesus Christ at the door to their hearts, but they would not hearken. All these warnings, though repeated every day and continued for so long a time, availed nothing. Now, is it not so much with you as it was with them? How often have you been warned? How have you heard the warning knocks of the gospel, Sabbath after Sabbath, for these many years? Yet how have some of you no more regarded them than the inhabitants of the old world regarded the noise of the workman's tools in Noah's ark? And thus begins a great awakening. So have you sat here and listened week after week, the hammering and the pounding referring to the ark of God and not responding? Do not put it off. Do not delay. Not because I'm telling you something's going to happen when you drive out of the parking lot. Because I'm telling you week after week, every blow of the hammer of the word of God that we do not heed hardens us. It's a nail fastening us to our sin. And the only salvation is opening up and responding to the word of God. Now, if you have responded and you say, I realize the ark and I am in the ark of Jesus Christ, the warning that comes to us or the question that comes to us is, am I positively responding to God's word each Sunday? Or am I becoming complacent because there's just so much access that I don't pay attention to it? 
One thing I, I worry sometimes, some Christians in America listen to so much teaching of the Scripture, there's no way to apply it all. Better to hear a right amount that we take and we receive and we apply than I'm listening to hours and hours and hours every week, most of which is just going in and out. And then I've heard it before and I'm inoculated to it. Am I responding to the Word of God? Am I growing in obedience or just knowledge? I will promise you, if you will sit here week after week, you will grow in knowledge. Because I'm going to labor at the Scriptures and I'm going to teach you. And that is a good thing, provided we take it and we apply the Word. But if we don't, my clay pot getting hardened in the sun. So what we're going to do is we're going to come to the table of the Lord. And this table reminds us both of the gospel that was proclaimed by the apostles, that is the word of the Lord, but it also is a chance for us to confess our sin, and it's a time for us to recommit, because we see, we have heard the word proclaimed, now we're going to see the word, the gospel before us. And I want to urge you, if you are here and you are a believer, this, this meal is for you, but if you are here and you're saying, you know what? I'm guilty. I've been toying with the Word of God. Friends, this is, there is no one in this room that gets more afraid of that phrase than me. Please hear this. This is not me just preaching to you because what am I going to do tomorrow to wake up and do for my job? I'm going to handle this Word. All day, every day. And if you think that I can't get complacent, you're kidding yourself. There are many, many handling the Word of God daily that become very complacent. The ones who knew Scripture best were the ones who rejected Jesus when He came. They knew every jot and tittle and missed the Word of God when He became flesh among them. So, so don't think this is just aimed at you, but if we've been doing that, if there's any sense of that, now's the time to repent. Now's the time to say, oh, Holy Spirit, I want the, the body and blood of Christ to cleanse me of that. I want a heart that is soft to your work. I want to, I want to be so that when I hear the prompting of the Holy Spirit, I am quick to obey. Lord, give me a heart that is that way. That's what we're going to do this morning. I know it can be a fearful thing but it is a good thing because we have so much access to the Word. It is life for you and I. What I receive from the Lord Jesus, I pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread. When He had given thanks, He broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we are so, so grateful that we have heard the word of the gospel. We are so grateful that we know not only who Jesus is, but what Jesus has done. 
We know that he was broken for us, his blood was shed for us, that he was raised for us, that he was uh, ascended to your right hand, and oh God, that he sits there and intercedes for us. Lord, as those who know that, we realize and recognize our responsibility. Lord, would you please send your Holy Spirit now to work through this sacrament to soften us that we would receive in faith. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. As you get the elements, please hold on to them. We will take them together in just a couple of moments, and please take the next couple of minutes to uh, confess any things to God and to ask the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts to the Word of God. Lord Jesus, as we hold this bread in our hands, we recognize that you became one of us because of our persistent rejection of the Word of God. Lord, your Word, your command was life to us in the garden. You created us and all things by your powerful word. You freely gave us every good fruit in the garden for ourselves. And you commanded in that word one thing that was reserved to yourself. Father, Adam and Eve, eat a path to that tree. They plucked the fruit in rebellion to you and rejection of your word. And Father, we have all participated in that. And so Jesus, you, the very word of God, were broken, you were crushed, you were crucified for us. And Lord, this morning, as we take this bread, we do not sit here and say, oh, we are not like our fathers. We would not have done what they did. Lord, we humbly this morning confess that far too often we ourselves have rejected your word. And so, Lord, in taking this bread, we confess our own sin and weakness. And, Lord, our hope is not in how well we have kept the word, but that Jesus who is the Word, always obeyed your every utterance. It's not that we have obeyed every prompting from the Holy Spirit, but that He was constantly led by the Holy Spirit and obeyed. And so, Father, this morning, we both confess and repent of our sin, but we also give thanks to you that Jesus was broken for our disobedience that we might be put whole by his obedience. Thanks be to God. Take and eat. And Lord, as we lift up this cup that represents the blood of Jesus Christ, we recognize, Lord, that our problem is not just the sin of Adam and Eve, but it's all of our own consistent rejections and rebellions, each of which have strengthened sin's grip upon us. And so, Lord, we need the blood of Christ not only to cleanse us from the penalty of our sin, but from its power. Lord, we would be those who would hear and quickly respond and obey. And so, Lord, as we lift up this cup, the cup of salvation this morning, we ask not only that you would cleanse us of our sin, 
but that you would break its power fresh and new and that you would soften our hearts that we might be the responsive people of God. Father, thank you for the blood of Jesus that is sufficient to justify and to sanctify. Take and drink. Spirit of the living God, who hovered upon the waters of chaos and death and brought life and fruitfulness in the original creation. Spirit of the living God, who hovered over the womb of a young virgin and caused her to conceive and bring forth the word of God and who enabled her to say, I am the handmaiden of the Lord, even so be it unto me as according to God's word. Spirit of the living God, who first opened our eyes and worked powerfully so that we believed and received the gospel, would you come and soften us? Spirit of the living God, you who inspired the very word that has been proclaimed this morning, would you take it and shape our hearts this week? Would you take the sacrament we have just partaken, and would you strengthen us in the grace of God this week? Would you make us to be obedient sons and daughters of the living God? Holy Spirit, I pray you would fall fresh on every one of us, that we would hear and receive and that we would be softened by the word of God, that we might go forth and obey, and that we might go forth and speak that word of life to those around us. I ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, and we will conclude with the word of benediction. From Paul's word to the Ephesian elders, I encourage you to receive the blessing of God. Now I commit you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all the holy ones, those God has set apart for himself. Go in the blessing of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.